Now, Father, what we want to do in these services is to have a fresh understanding of the sovereign God of the universe. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. We want to understand the greatness of our God. We want to explore the expanse of what you have created to be able to gain a greater understanding of this one who gets personally involved in our own ash heap experiences and then send Jesus to the cross to die for our sins. Now, Father, these are important moments. This is when we open up the word. This is when we begin to ponder, explore what it is that the God of the universe has said, how it relates to our lives. So, Father, in these moments to come, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the Billy Graham crusade, really crusades. I was seated near the front, and there my friend Bob Bakke that I had gone to school with, as the director of the National Day of Prayer, was on the platform. An exchange of glances with one another, thinking about what has just transpired. There's been so much preparation involved getting to this point in time, the actual nights of the crusade. Look across the expanse, making sure my team was ready to go for counseling purposes as people came forward. The moment appears again and again and again where there would be this silver-haired man with a baritone voice a richness to the way in which he would sing, would make his way up to the podium. It would be George Beverly Shea. You could hear a pin drop where the thousands upon thousands now are anticipating the message from Mr. Graham, but now are riveting their attention upon this this wonderful voice that's going to begin to draw people's attention to God. And with the choir behind him, George Beverly Shea would begin to sing, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. And then as the choir would join him, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Now everybody's attention's riveted. 
and this majestic voice is quieted, and he, Mr. Shea, steps aside as Mr. Graham makes his way to the podium. And what Mr. Shea has done for us is that he once again, no matter what the needs are of that vast audience, is to draw our attention to the greatness of God. Now in chapters 38 and 39, what God has done is to expose Job to the greatness of God. He takes Job on a tour of the cosmos. Got to pull out your telescope now. Ponder the planetary systems. Look at the stars. Ponder the moon in relationship to the sun and vice versa. Look at the clouds. Consider the climactic matters of the climate matters. Because here now, in a climactic moment, in a climate-oriented situation, God appears within the whirlwind. Why? Have you noticed how God will use extreme expressions of who he is? to reveal himself in the extreme circumstances that we are experiencing. Now, Job has had a tremendous longing, hasn't he, to be able to enter into God's cosmic courtroom and plead for justice. What happens? God appears at Job's ash heap and offers Job grace. In a culture caught up with matters such as social justice and so on, where people will want to have a hearing, here is God, and he is coming to Job on God's terms, rather than Job appearing before God on Job's terms. God is now appearing to Job on God's terms, and he is about to not deliver justice, but to deliver grace. But he starts with the sense of how great thou art. And then he moves from the macro realm of chapters 38 and 39 to the micro realm. And in essence, we spotted it last week, where he would challenge Job, behold, behemoth. And later, behold, Leviathan. And we went of our way to postulate what those two beings that God created might be. But the key word, postulate. There's some uncertainties there. But what Job's got to understand is that there's a connection between God's greatness and God's grace. The natural tendency is to think that my suffering is... So great, where is God? What God wants to say to Job is, my nature is so great. Here I am before you, Job. And he extends grace out of his greatness. Now, if you need to be able to experience grace out of God's greatness... Here is God, not asking you to enter his courtroom, but God appearing at your ash heap now, your own setting of hurt and pain, and he will begin to minister. How do you respond? What I want to do with you now is to draw out from Job's own words 
three significant acknowledgments that Job makes about God that are critically important to help us when we're going through trials, when we're going through times of suffering, that better prepare us then to be able to experience what we have penned within this insert in our closing expression, that while we desire for God to transform our sufferings, it is God's intent to first transform the sufferer. Three acknowledgments, and the first comes out of verse 1 and verse 2, that in the midst of personal trials, which a lot of us are going through in all of these services this morning, here's the acknowledgment. Acknowledge God's greatness in, first of all, the sovereign purpose that he possesses. It appears on the screen. Notice very carefully now how it begins to unfold for you. Notice that Job answered the Lord. Job had questions for God. God's not answering Job. He's posing questions to Job. And now here then is Job, and he's answering the Lord. But again, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, isn't it? Now what you've spotted through all 42 chapters in Job, which we began in January of this year, is that when Job was being counseled by his religious counselors, or they would refer to the Sovereign One as Elohim, or Eloah, or El, or El Shaddai. Lots of L's in there, E-L. But not necessarily Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because that is the covenantal relational name for God. They seem to lack a relationship with God. They could talk about God, question, do they know God? Now, what fascinates us is that at his ash heap, he talks to the Lord, do you, in your time of hurt? Do you have just overwhelming sense of the greatness of your suffering, or do you have an overwhelming sense of the greatness of God? What's your starting point? Notice Job's starting point. He answered the Lord, and then notice what he said. He begins with the phrase, I know. Now, throughout all these chapters... Job has made assumptions about God that led to accusations against God. We've stated this week by week by week. The danger is, if we don't check our assumptions against what God has revealed about himself, we're going to be then making accusations against God and then wondering, and why haven't you stepped in and intervened and resolved my issues? No, we need a clear understanding of the nature of God. And so now, here is Job, and it is no longer assumptions leading to accusations that, God, you've been unfair. But rather, the, Job answers the Lord, and he says this, I know. What does he say with regard to what I know? I know that you can do all things. That's, that's the power of God. So what God has done in chapter 38 and 39 is that he took Job on a tour of the cosmos. He was the tour guide. 
Job would have to hold up his telescopes, so to speak, and ponder what God has created. And he would be forced to be able to say within his heart, God can do all things. Again, if God can create something out of nothing, he can create something good out of something bad, including what I've experienced, which is pretty bad. I know, God, that you can do all things, and God needs to hear this from the lips of Job. And perhaps God needs to hear it from your lips as well. That no matter what your ash heap experience is, and no matter how poor the counseling might have been, you have got to reach a point, biblically speaking, where you have explored the nature of God and say, I know that you can do all things. And then you can begin to apply it. But not only did God give him the cosmic tour in 30 and 39 with astronomy in mind, but then he gave exhibit A and exhibit B of behemoth and Leviathan in chapters 40 and 41 and had zoology in mind. And now he's saying, in essence, Job, look at the anatomical structures of these beings and how I created them for their own habitats so that they could thrive, not merely survive. Job, if I can do that, imagine what I can do with you. And likewise, what you've got to do is to bring creational wisdom, whether it be telescopically or microscopically, into your own personal experience and say, if God can do that, imagine what I can, he can do with my messed up experience called life. But where do you go with that? I know that you can do all things, is what he would say to God. But notice that he combines the power of God at the beginning of verse 2 with the purpose of God at the end of verse 2. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, when you think you can frustrate God, find out, in fact, that God will frustrate the frustrator. This is what Pharaoh experienced in Egypt. This is what Haman experienced in the book of Esther. But what Job is saying here is that even though I might not know your reasons why, nonetheless, I'm prone to say no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And likewise, you might not know the reasons why you're going through what you're going through, but God is sovereign in his purpose, and he combines his power with his purpose to create his own strategy for your good. I know the plans that I have for you. God says, they're not meant to harm you. you know. He's got his reasons. Heard the song Reason by Unspoken. This year's felt like four seasons of winter, and you'd give anything you think to feel the sun, always reaching, always climbing, always second-guessing the timing. But God has a plan, a purpose in this. You are his child, so don't you forget. He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason. Keep on believing when you feel like giving up and when you feel like giving in, his love is the reason to keep on believing. If we could pull back the curtain of heaven, we would see his hand on everything. Every hour, every minute, every second he's always been in it. Don't let the shadow of a doubt take hold. Hold on to what you already know. And Job answered the Lord said, I know. 
He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason to keep on believing. He's got a reason in all, in, in every season. Reason, unspoken. Now, what you've done in verse 2 is this. You have wisely connected the power of God. He can do all things with the purpose of God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted, which Joseph understood, of course, when his brothers came toward him. And Job had, Joseph had to be wondering in his prison, imprisonment, where are you, God? Even though again and again and again, the Genesis account tells us, and the Lord was with Joseph. But all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so now, Joseph's brothers, who had sold Joseph into slavery, are now standing before Joseph, who is in second command in the land of Egypt. They had their reasons, but God has the ultimate reason. And Joseph was able, evangelistically, to be able to say to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for your many survivors, which the Jewish population, even with the Holocaust and the likes, has been preserved to this very day. And then later in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph would say to them, Do not fear, for I am, in the place of, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it against me, but God meant it for the good to bring it about that many people should be alive, kept alive, as they are today. And as my pastor Warren Wearsby of a prior era would say, when God is involved, he might hurt you, but he will never harm you. Maybe Monica Dickens understands that. In her book, Miracles of Courage, she tells of a two-year-old David who began treatment for leukemia at Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston. Now, the physician in David's case, Dr. John Truman, had given the child only a 50-50 chance of surviving the illness. We're told David underwent numerous painful treatments and blood tests, and his mother, Deborah, found it hard to watch her boy suffer. And although David always cried during the painful treatments, he never cried in the waiting room. Why? He knew that when he went into the clinic, Dr. Truman would stick him with needles and hurt him, and I've marked that. Yet whenever his name was called, he would hurry in ahead of his mother and greet the nurses with a smile. The writer says he had trouble pronouncing the letter R, must be a New Englander. So when he saw the doctor, he'd wave and say, Hi, Dr. Tuman. Well, soon after, he turned three, and David had to undergo a painful spinal tap, removal of fluid from the lumbar region, you see, of the spinal cord. And so he was scared, but he put on this brave front. And his mother told him, Dr. Truman has to do this to make you well, honey. I know it hurts, but Dr. Truman only does this because he loves you. Dr. Diane Kopp, who writes of this account, tells us the procedure was painful. Deborah was in agony watching her son squirm. Three nurses had to hold, hold him down. 
But when it was over, and the boy was soaked in sweat and tears, he looked up at Dr. Truman with trusting eyes and said, quote, Thank you, Dr. Truman, for hurting me. Unquote. This year's felt like four seasons of winter, and you'd give anything you think to feel the sun, always reaching, always climbing, always second-guessing the timing. But God has a plan, a purpose in this. You are his child, so don't you forget God's child. You thought perhaps you could find that sense of security in the courtroom, but I want you to know, Job, you can find your sense of identity at the ash heap. You thought you'd approach God. God loves you so much, Job, he approaches you. He meets you where you're at. What's your ash heap? He meets you where you're at. How much he loves you, you know. Reasons by unspoken. And so now you're thinking about that and you're connecting now the power of God at the first part of verse 2 with the purpose of God in the second part of verse 2. You think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. God's got his reasons. You think about the Jews at the time of Esther in the book in which God has thwarted the efforts of Haman to annihilate the Jews so that whether it be Haman of old or Hitler of these last decades, you've got a God who's sovereignly involved in keeping his promise according to his purpose, exhibiting his power, and offer his glory. If he can do that at the macro level, he can do that, you see, at the personal level for you. Do you trust him in that? Well, now I can see Job taking a deep breath because he's still got to keep talking to God, which is no easy thing to do, you see. And so he inches his way from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 and 4, where now the second, the second acknowledgement appears on the screen that in the midst of personal trials, well, acknowledge God's greatness in the critical questions he poses critical questions now that God poses and begins to unfold in verse 3. And what I want you to see now is the where, where the quote marks are. Where the quote marks are. Because what we find here is that Job is now quoting God. And when you are involved in intense suffering, what you've got to do is to be able to give back to God what God has revealed to you in his word. Not in your wishes, but in his word. Like Jesus Christ on the cross, who in his statements on the cross would deliver truths from the Old Testament back to God, such as from Psalm 22. Here now is Job, and he is doing the likewise when he says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now notice that who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Why, in that cosmic tour of the universe, there is the Lord, you see, in chapter 38 of verse 3. Dressed for action like a man, I'll question you. 
And you make it known to me, the Lord would, would say to Job. And again, again, in chapter 40 of verse 7, dress for action like a man. Be the man, Job. I'll question you. You make it known to me. And then the questions came one after another after another. And Job wanted to be his own defense attorney in God's cosmic courtroom. And here is Job now being schooled in the classroom of life at the ash heap where his sovereign teacher now has posed questions. And what does the student do? He quotes the teacher. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, this is a self-admittance. This is now Job acknowledging what he probably should have acknowledged long ago. I have uttered what I did not understand. You ever been there with God? God, I have been in situations where I don't understand what you're doing, but I've gone out of my way to explain it. And I've told everybody what you are doing, even though in reality I didn't have the right to do so. But what he has done is now he has admitted the fact that this is God who is posing the questions. And as God poses the questions, the question is, how will Job handle such? 1940. C.S. Lewis publishes The Problem of Pain. It's a book that examined the question of why you and I suffer, why you and I hurt, why we're going through what we're going through. Why the ash heaps of life? Well, here's what's interesting, is that around the time of the problem of pain was published, C.S. Lewis became acquainted with a Christian poet and novelist by the name of Charles Williams. They became buddies. And Lewis invited Williams to join this literary group that was known as the Inklings in London, England, in Greater England, which included such authors and scholars as Tolkien, Barfield and Dyson. The writer tells us on one occasion, C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams were involved in a, a discussion on the book of Job. And during their talk, Williams pointed out that God permitted Job to boldly, even angrily, question him. And though he did point out to Job that his human understanding was flawed and limited, God never reprimanded Job or punished him for asking the tough, painful questions about suffering. Instead, God's displeasure was reserved for Job's so-called counselors, three people who tried to provide simplistic answers to life's tough questions. Get this. The sort of people, Williams said, smiling as he looked at C.S. Lewis, the sort of people who write books about and on the problem of pain, unquote. Now, there's questions here. What you and I have to do is to, from Old Testament through New, look at the questions that God poses to people, even in their hurting times, and especially in their hurting times. Ask why is he posing these questions? What can we learn from his question? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job remembers that question. Here's his answer. 
Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand. And then goes on to say this. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not, I did not know. Now he said, I know at the beginning of verse 2, but now he says, I did not know at the end of verse 3. You see the word wonderful? Hebrew word pella. It means literally one who does difficult, hard, or even miraculous things. Remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you reach a point in your own ash heap experience when you are able to say, I've got the wonderful counselor, one who does difficult, hard, even miraculous things, when Job has been counseled by less than wonderful counselors? And what we desperately need is a new, fresh understanding of what wonder is in relationship to the sovereign God. Elke understood it. She fell sick on a trip to Egypt one year, and Dr. Diane Comp tells us at first she thought the fever sweats were from malaria, but an x-ray at a local hospital hinted at something worse, Hodgkin's disease. No wonder she had lost so much weight. Her husband, Dr. Diane Comp, faxed me her oncologist's recommendation. Comp is an on- oncologist, you see. Intensive chemotherapy. Protocol was similar to the regimen I used for my Hodgkin's patients. It's tough, but effective. I knew from experience that it's so tough that more than a few adults stop their treatment halfway through. The children I treat have parents to encourage or bully them through it. I want to make sure that Elka would not lose heart. Get this. Ponder the wonder of it all. I made a packet of patient education brochures, brought them with me to Germany. Elka thumbed through them. She found tips, facts that her doctors had never given her. I felt relieved that there was something that I could do to help. But it was not my information that carried Elka through the long months, multiple cycles of intensive chemotherapy. Instead, she took her encouragement from a recurring symbol of a wonderful God. Before each round of chemotherapy, Elka went to the hospital to have her blood counts checked. Get this. If her white blood cells were high enough, she would stay for the chemo. If not, she went home and waited for another day. For a busy person, it was a hard way to plan life, but Elka knew by morning exactly which days her blood counts would be high enough for treatment. Why? How? The bouquets came a variety of ways. Sometimes a friend stopped by to deliver one personally, Other times they came by way of a telefloris. None of these friends had consulted with each other or made a plan, but Elka knew that if there was a gift of flowers that day, her blood counts would be high enough to get her chemo. She saw the flowers as a gift from the wonderful God, a sign that he was involved to help her through. I've uttered what I, I didn't understand. I don't get it. Things too wonderful for me. I didn't know. I spoke prematurely. 
shot from the hip. What I need is a, I need is a fresh encounter with this sovereign God. Do you? He doesn't invite you into his courtroom. He invites himself to your ash heap. And in a culture that's seeking justice, he offers what's really needed. Real grace. But now you're on to the third acknowledgement. One and two, the sovereign purpose he possesses. Three and four, the critical questions he poses. But five and six now, the personal response he desires. What are you going to do when God appears at your ash heap? Here's what Job now says. I heard of you. In other words, like a lot of religious people, I know a lot about you. But until now, I didn't know you. Do you know God? Or you've settled merely to know something about God. Make it personal because it's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But in the midst of the whirlwind, here now is Job, the hurting one, saying to God, the creator, now, but now, my eyes see you. Augustine was once challenged by an unbeliever who said, as he showed Augustine an idol, here's my God, where's your God? And Augustine responded, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show, but because you have no eyes to see him. Yeah, God uses whirlwinds and in the extremes of ash heap life moments, he uses the extreme circumstances to get our needed attention. God is not necessarily going to give us answers, but he does require of us our allegiance. So Job thought he was going to be able to somehow get an audience with God, but have you ever tried to subpoena God? Here's his conclusion. Here's his therefore. Therefore. I despise myself. Why? He despises what he has said about God. He's accused God as the cosmic audience was peering forward and Satan was waiting to see if he would curse God and die. I despise myself because I have falsely accused God of being unfair. When God would appear at my ash heap and offer me grace, Whenever you're prone to accuse God of being unfair, remember God comes to the ash heap and offers grace. He had been too busy prejudging the judge. Therefore, I despise myself in that regard. An awareness of God leads to an awareness of self. Puts everything in proper perspective. And repent. In dust and ashes, 
the irony is that God never challenged Job to repent. He just revealed himself to Job. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's Isaiah who says, Whoa, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And there has to be a point in time when we are so undone, we need a redo. Which is what God is about to do with Job. And so now he says, I repent. And in the New Testament, there's, there is Jesus with Peter on that boat. And, and they cast out into the waters. And Peter is weary. And he's had no catch. And he's the fisherman. Jesus is the carpenter. But Jesus says, cast your nets to the other side of the boat. And they do. And they're bringing in so much in terms of a haul that the boats begin to sink. And what does Peter say in response? Depart from me. And refers to himself, he refers to himself as a sinner. When Jesus did not even mention the word sin. But when we've got a clear awareness of God, we've got a clear awareness of self, and then everything which is undone begins to be redone, which we'll see next week. Therefore, I despise myself, he says, repent in dust and ashes. And he takes us right back to that Genesis account of how God would create Adam from the dust. And what do you take out of all this? What we penned in our insert this week. We're in the concluding sentences. While we desire for God to transform our sufferings, it is God's intent to first transform the sufferer. This was the experience of Job. Grace flows out of greatness. And as the psalmist would put it in the 145, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. As Mr. Shea would then sing, How great thou art, how great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. The message then provided, the invitation given, as hurting people come forward to get a redo that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's stand together. Our Father, we need a God awareness and we need real self-awareness. You didn't require Job to come to the courtroom. You didn't give justice. You came to the ash heap. You provided grace. And there are those in each of these services this morning that are ash heap survivors. And they're wondering, is there going to be a tomorrow to all of this? What's the purpose in all this? 
You combine your power with your purpose. You pose the questions. You desire the response. We acknowledge you for who you are. And while the evil one was peering in as the last words of Job were being uttered, hoping that now Job would curse the sovereign God and die, Job acknowledges who you are, acknowledges what you've done, and gives you praise at his ash heap. No matter where we're at, Father, in our life experiences, may it be the same for us. We pray in Jesus' name. God bless you.